that's one of the reasons I've been so passionate about this program is I think that Texas State is the perfect fit for that kind of a program. I think mm -hmm. we have the students that NSF is looking for. Um, and many of our students check more than one box. Oh, yeah. Right. And so we're talking about multiple um, um, intersectional identities there in terms of being underrepresented. funding coordinator for the Graduate College at Texas State University. Dr. Hilkovitz is also the university's primary coordinating official for the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship, also called the NSF GRFP, where she helps students prepare competitive applications. And to give a little bit more context, I applied to the GRF the last cycle um, and, you know, Dr. Hilkovitz is the coordinator at Texas State and Edgar, who's also joining us, is considering applying in the next cycle. So we really get a good perspective of, you know, the past, present, and in the future. Um, so thank you so much for being here, Edgar, you as well. Um, thanks and for having me. Yeah, you're, you're yeah, absolutely welcome. Thanks for having me. A very important podcast. A lot of people don't know about the GRF, especially undergraduates don't really think about that until they're applying to graduate school and then it might be too late. So the goal here is to put funding in general on students' radar and um, get them curious about their their future when it comes to securing these fellowships. So we want to talk about funding in general first. For example, why should students care about fellowships? Uh, a lot of programs, for example, are paid for. So, you know, I'm already getting it paid for. Why do I need to apply for fellowships? Why does it matter? That's a great question. Um it's funny because as a graduate student, I did not have that experience. I was a graduate student in humanities. And right, so yeah. um, it was only starting to work with science students that I encountered this, why should I, why would I even need funding? Because I didn't have a fully funded program. But I still think there's an incredible value in STEM of pursuing these kind of external awards. Um, one is you are building your professional resume. Um, and in, if you're looking for an academic career, even a, a government career, your job is going to involve grant writing, right? And so I think it's what we emphasize with our graduate students is we hope that you win. That's great if you do. But if you don't, there's still value in the process of applying because you're learning how you're learning who your funders are. You're learning how to speak their language and how to convey your research to an audience and those are skills that you're going to need throughout your entire career. So I would say first and foremost, I would recommend it as part of your professional development. It's an important part of your training. And then the funding is a bonus. Um, but the funding is obviously it opens a ton of doors. You know, if you have NSF next to your name, um, what we find with a lot of our students is um, they're able to take that and get into some of the best programs in the country, potentially programs that may not have been interested in them without that by their name. Um, and so I do think it opens doors. Um, yes, a lot of the programs in your field are going to be fully funded, um, but I think it's a really, um, it's an important resume builder as well. And and like you said, um, it's extremely, like the prestige almost is very important. Um, when I was applying to programs on their homepage, they would say, you know, 2021 awardees, NSF GRF awardees, and they put them on the front page because it's such a big deal. And on almost every program website, you can see like the history of, 
of students who've won it because it's it's a good track record of seeing how well the program is training their students. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think even just, I mean, you had this experience, I think, is when you were approaching programs, just showing them that you were in the process of applying. Yes, yes. You just, hadn't even yeah. won. Yeah. But the fact that you were applying really put yourself on their radar in terms of, wow, if an undergraduate is aware of this program and is serious enough to be putting together a competitive application, that sets you apart from other candidates. Yeah. So I, I, I'm glad you had that experience. How did, you, how did you make them aware that you were applying? It was a sentence in my personal oh, okay. statement. Um, I said... <laughs> In preparation for graduate school, I also prepared a competitive GRF application where I blah, 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 and like a brief, like one sentence saying what it was about. I didn't have to submit them any materials. I just, I basically said that I was working on it. And my letter writers, of course, can, can back talk up about that it, claim. Yeah. In your interviews, did you get asked about um, like GRF? Actually, I did. A few interviews, I did talk about it because some of them were more interested in my research plan that I pitched for than my actual research that I did, which oh. is funny. And But it also shows like I was very interested in trying to pursue other research outside of what I was trained in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also want to talk about your title, external funding coordinator. Some people listening might not even really know what that means in terms of yeah. internal, external. Can you give a little background on that? Absolutely. Again, I might share a personal story. Sure. I had no idea this field or profession even existed. Um, so I, it, you are not alone if you don't understand who, what it is that I do. Um, so that is a made-up title that we use here at Texas State. Um, most people who do the work that I do are called fellowship advisors. So okay. I am actually a member of the National Association of Fellowship Advisors. Okay. Um, and I, if I were to talk to colleagues outside of Texas State, I would generally say I'm a fellowship advisor or a graduate mm -hmm. fellowship advisor. Um, here at Texas State, I'm hired technically as a research coordinator, which is a research administration role. So we essentially took both of those titles um, and combined them to call it external funding mm -hmm. coordinator. So that is literally made up, um, but it works here at Texas State. Um, in terms of the second part of the question, which is internal versus external yeah. funding, um, broadly speaking, it's a very simple distinction between internal funding would be internal to Texas State in some capacity. So you likely have applied for scholarships through the College of Science and Engineering or through mm. the Department of Chemistry. Those are internal funds. External funding is everything outside of Texas State. Mm -hmm. um, and so we work with primarily graduate students who are applying for funding. But the NSF is an area where we also provide services to undergraduates because even though you're applying as an undergraduate, the funding is for your graduate education. Right. Uh, and right. so we assist with that. And I, I'm sure the majority of our audience is an undergraduate. Yeah. So more examples of internal versus external um, there are plenty of internal fellowships available at Texas State. More and more now, um, you, you've met Dr. Lewis, Karen Lewis. Yep. She was actually a guest on our podcast not too long ago, and she talked about the URISE program, Absolutely. which streamlines students into PhD programs, the biomedical sciences. Great internal fellowship. Right. Um, and, well, and that's actually yeah. an interesting one because I know URISE is actually funded by an external funder, right? Mm -hmm. So that's an NIH program. Um, National Correct. Institutes of Health. The difference is the institution applies for funding from the National Institutes of Health and gets an institutional grant. With those funds, they then award internal awards to Texas mm. State students. Does that have a name? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say, because I'm an HL SAMP scholar, Excellent. and okay. they're um, I, I, well, you said the definitions of an internal and external. So now I was trying to figure out like, 
what does HOSAM classify under? Because it's rewarding internal students in the col- in the College of Science and Engineering, but it's a yeah. I feel like it's an external it's a good question. funding. But I know that they also receive some money from Ingram School of Engineering. So I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'm glad they're helping, but there's so on, much. Like, depending on how you think of it, I guess everything could be external. This is true. But I guess was the competition internal to the institution or was it external? Exactly. So it was internal Which was internal. Exactly. So I'm assuming it's an internal exactly. funding. I guess. Yeah. So those and are it, typically yeah. institutional grants. I, I would say in the research administration world, we would call it a sub-award, which is a very mm. boring term, but it basically means um, they give awards to a number of institutions and then they are giving out awards themselves to students at their institutions. Mm. So, okay. And yeah. um, we've touched on some institutions like the government institutions, the NIH, National Institutes of Health, NSF. Um, where else can students get funding for undergraduate or graduate? What other what are other good sources that people can, I guess, look to if they're curious? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, NSF is definitely our flagship program for students mm-hmm. in STEM. It tends to have the most name recognition. If, if I find a student that's familiar with something, they've at least heard of NSF. Mm-hmm. Um, more and more, we have students who are funded by NIH on this campus, which is really exciting. Um, I would say the undersubscribed programs or where I'd like to see students apply are Department of Energy grants. So there mm-hmm. are fellow, similar fellowships through the Department of Energy. Those can be great fits depending on your project. Um, also the national, um, sorry, the um, Department of Defense. So Department oh, okay. of Defense mm-hmm. has, uh, we have a lot of faculty who are funded by Department of Defense, DOD. They have two awards that are for graduate studies. One is the SMART program. So it's a SMART scholarship for service program. It's essentially in return for graduate funding, you work as a civil, as part of the civilian workforce for DOD after graduation. Um, and then the other is NDSEG, which is the National Defense Science and Engineering Graduate Fellowship. So essentially, um, these are all funders that are interested in STEM research. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really just is a, a lot of times I'll talk with students after they apply for NSF. NSF is probably the most broad. Um, and then sometimes students will tailor those applications to something that makes a lot of sense for maybe a niche area within the Department of Energy or Department of Defense. Oh, yeah. Um, there are also awards that maybe aren't STEM specific that students overlook a lot. So um, I think you and I talked about Ford Foundation. Yeah. So foundations um, yes. like the Gates Foundation, the Absolutely. Ford Foundation, uh, um, Howard Hughes, Howard Hughes Medical Institute. That's another Absolutely. big one. Yeah. Uh, that's more medically related. And I don't know if there's anything available for undergraduates in, in some of those. But um, again, for those considering potentially going to graduate school, um, there's a lot of, I think they're called pre-doctoral training groups. Absolutely. So. Yeah. So Ford Foundation has a pre-doctoral fellowship. Um, so foundations are another source. We already talked about federal agencies, but there are also state agencies or local agencies that yeah. fund students. Yeah. In addition, we often encourage students to look at professional organizations. So you all are members of ACS, ACS yeah. right? So so we've had, yeah, we've had Chris on here talk yeah. about the Scholars Program, and that right. is for undergraduates. Right. So there are programs, professional organizations are interested in getting students to attend graduate studies and advance in yeah. the disciplines. Those yeah. are great sources of support. Honor societies. Um, we had two students this year win major dissertation fellowships from Phi Kappa Phi. There are other graduate research grants from Phi Kappa Phi. So that's an interdisciplinary honor society, but there are also chemistry or STEM-specific honor societies. Mm-hmm. And there are also company-sponsored awards. So external awards can come from lots of different sources, and it's really a good idea to start to become aware 
of where the funding would come from. It's there's, not just NSF. There's so much free money. Yeah. I, I, I have never, yeah, I mean, quote unquote free, right? But like all the stuff that you mentioned, I think I was maybe familiar with 15% of it. And by familiar, I mean, like I've heard the name. I don't even know like how to apply or where to look or who to talk to. Like, that's I guess. not I, unusual. So yeah. I'm glad you're voicing that. <laughs> I do find that when, I think that's important because mm-hmm. I think when students hear these things, I encounter a lot of students who think I've been doing everything wrong. I don't know about this. That's what I'm I was so thinking. far behind, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a really normal part of the experience. And what we find a lot of times, you know, I'm, I'm housed in the graduate school, so we're aware of this barrier. There's a big barrier, um, even in the same institution, between undergraduate studies and graduate studies. So I, I don't think that we do um, a good enough job at any institution, really, my colleagues across the country talk about mm-hmm. this problem, helping prepare students for graduate studies and for graduate funding. Um, that's just a bridge that a lot of students, and I, you know, I would say at Texas State, it's really important because we have a lot of first-gen students. We have a lot of students who don't have other people in their lives to help them through this part of the process, right? right? And so if, if you're a student who doesn't know any of this, you're very reliant on your institution and your faculty mentors to help guide you. Yeah. And if your faculty aren't talking to you about funding, then those are the students who show up in my office saying, I got into grad school. Now I need funding. And I have to say to them, okay, we can start applying for next year, but you don't have any funding this year. Yeah, so this year. It's, a, um, it's unfortunately a common concern that I hear. And I think there's a lot of work to be done nationally in terms of improving that pipeline. What kind of work do you think? Because I know you say like, um, you don't think you're doing a or a overall, like it's not a good enough job. I mean, in my opinion, you're already doing a really good job because you already I'm, I feel like just by having you in this conversation, I'm already ahead because I didn't know before. And I'm sure whoever's listening will feel some sort of way uh, similar to me. So when you say like you're not doing or overall not doing a good enough job, like what do you think is a factor or what specifically do you mean by not enough? I think there are institutional barriers. Mm -hmm. So a really good example is I always wonder about, you know, we email all of the eligible students. Very few of them come to our information session, let alone engage in the process, right? So there are going to be students like Nick who come, but um, I I have lots of questions every year about, actually, I, I, this came up today, we had an award ceremony, and they there was a student who was being awarded as a master's student. They were describing that he was here as a Texas State undergrad. And I looked at my colleague and I said, why have I never met this person before? Mm. Their background was stellar. I think it was actually a chemist. And I was thinking to myself, Hmm. it's too late now. They can't apply for NSF. I think the person just got accepted into our MSEC program. That's great. But my reaction to that was, how did we miss him? Where have you been? Where have you been? Yeah, we're in, so, in, in my defense, yeah. um, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Peterson, my PI, sent me so many emails and reminders to go to these uh, information sessions, and I was always like, ah, I don't, I don't know if I want to do this, and it seems like a very daunting thing at first. So I, I, I was definitely um, nudged um, heavily yeah. into going. Well, and that's that's a good example of how your PI or faculty mentor can make a yeah, huge difference. And, and Dr. Right? Peterson is a great mentor, right? And it's not that other people aren't good mentors. I I will tell you from a faculty perspective, I often talk with faculty who feel uncertain about the graduate funding landscape themselves. And so they will say, I I know what I applied for as a graduate student, Mm. but I don't feel very competent about talking with with my students about everything that's available. Interesting. Yeah. 
Um, so that may be, not be something that you've ever thought of as a student. We think of our faculty as, you know, know it all. all. Yeah. And then, um, they will often voice to me that they don't feel well qualified to mentor in that capacity. But I would just point to institutional barriers. I mean, I'm, I'm essentially someone that a student has never heard of. I'm emailing from the graduate college and you may be thinking, well, I don't, I'm applying to schools outside of Texas state. Maybe I'm not even applying to Texas state. Um, And then I'm inviting you to come to a talk. All of those are big risks to take as a student. I'm going to show up and talk to this person who I've never met. I don't know. um, And, and put myself out there. I think those are things that we still need to try to work harder to overcome. Well said. And, you know, that's what this podcast is trying to do, among other things. This is something that Edgar and I have always kind of been frustrated about. It's like not learning about whether it's graduate school or a post-college experiences until like your senior year where it's kind of late to do stuff like that. But things like you rise and other programs are also working towards that. Um, and I can, well, I can only speak on the chemistry and biochemistry department. But yeah, I, I definitely think that um, there's work to be done, but we're, it's a process. So. We're heading in the right direction. Yeah, I, I, think. I think so. I, I, that's actually something that's really important to say is any freshmen's coming in, um, definitely heading towards the right direction. Let's talk about the good stuff. Um, the Graduate Research Fellowship. Um, can you briefly just give a um, concise explanation of what the GRF is? Um, it, yeah, go ahead. Happy to. Um, so the GRF, we've used this term a couple times, so it stands for Graduate Research Fellowship Program. You'll hear people shorten that to GRF, Graduate Research Fellowship, or talk about it as a program. Either one is fine. So GRF or GRFP, it's the same thing. Um, It is the only program for NSF that that funds students um, directly. There are things that students can apply for later on in their careers, but they are applying through the institution. So even though you worked with someone institutionally and had support, you could have applied independently. Mm-hmm. I told you that was a foolish thing to consider doing, get <laughs> yeah. help, right? Yeah. Um, but, but it's the only program where students can apply independently. Its intention is to fund students early in their careers who have potential to be compelling scientists in the future. Um, so it funds students in STEM and some STEM-supported social sciences, but primarily STEM for this audience. Chemistry is a funded field. Um, And it also has a significant diversity component. So in addition to looking for the next generation of scientists, um, they're looking for um, students who have traditionally been underrepresented in STEM. And so uh, we always encourage um, women in STEM, um, historically underrepresented populations in terms of race and ethnicity, students with disabilities, um, LGBTQIA students. There are lots of ways to define diversity, mm-hmm. but that's a significant component of this of this fellowship. As and well. NSF has, it seems like um, every year they're broadening their definition of underrepresented. Um, they're trying yeah, to, yes. It, it seems like, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. Uh, I remember talking about it with Dr. Lewis and you rises now, it's even more inclusive. So there's a lot of, if you don't think you're eligible, just make sure you look at the... Um... Yeah, I didn't mes- mention mm-hmm. socioeconomic diversity. Correct. You know, we've had yes. a couple of students who um, you might look at a photo of them and think, well, that person is not diverse, yeah. right? And yet I know from working with that student on that application that there may have been some significant significant barriers. Right. So maybe a student emerged from foster care. Exactly. Maybe a student came went through community college and transferred to Texas State. Um, maybe the student moved a lot and was um, a, a military-connected student. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of, um, of um, 
potential barriers that could be perce- perceived by NSF as diversifying um, the STEM fields. Yeah, so that's, you, you must love Texas State because you know I, we're a minority-serving yes. institution. I feel like a lot of students, you know, check a lot of those boxes. Absolutely, I I would say. Um, that's one of the reasons I've been so passionate about this program is I think that Texas State is the perfect fit for that kind of a program. I think mm-hmm. we have the students that NSF is looking for. Um, and many of our students check more than one box. Oh, yeah. Right. And so we're talking about multiple um, um intersectional identities there in terms of being underrepresented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're a minority serving institution. That's an actual Absolutely. thing, a label that institutions can get. So I don't remember what the criteria is, but I think that's I mean, I did a presentation and I remember uh, for one of my communication courses and I, I mean, this must have changed, but when I was doing it, I think 43% of the student population identified as Hispanic. Well, that's a Hispanic serving yeah. institution. Yeah, I'm just saying. we're also a majority yeah, more. minority institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that's the idea is like there's a lot of minorities at Texas State and even like non-traditional students, That's uh, they're well supported at Texas State. So, you know, highly encouraged to apply to something like the GRF. Um, so with, with that being said, um, I want to talk about just the like logistics on how you prepare students to apply. Um, you know, we got, uh, you know, very intimate interactions every week, uh, last fall, uh, where we met. And, and so if you could speak a little bit more about how you help students to apply. Yeah. Um, maybe first I should mention a couple more things about GRS. Oh yeah, sure, sure. I realized I, I cut that part short. So, um, the things that students care about, maybe so financially. Oh, yeah. That's a good um, yeah. The award is a um, is one hundred and thirty eight thousand mm-hmm. dollars currently. So it is one of the largest awards um, for students. Um, it is three years of funding for forty six thousand dollars per year, and that's um, divided into two categories of funding. So thirty four thousand dollars a year for a stipend, that is essentially um, paying your living expenses. So. As a graduate student, you can work in addition to that, or you can focus on your research and have the stipend pay for your expenses. There's also a cost of education allowance. Um, that is a little tricky the way that works, but essentially your uh, graduate institution gets $12,000 a year to pay for your um, tuition and fees. At many of the institutions our students are interested in going to, $12,000 isn't even close to the cost of tuition. So what I always explain to students is think of it as full tuition and fees. So even if you're going to an institution where the cost is $30,000 a year, the institution will take $12,000 from NSF and find a way to cover the difference. Mm-hmm. So from your perspective as a student, you're getting a $34,000 stipend for three years and full tuition and fees for three years. Mm-hmm. And something I'd like to, so you, I don't know how much you mentioned this when I was you know, applying, but... Um, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of programs, at least in STEM and like chemistry programs are paid for, uh, PhD programs specifically. Um, so if you get this fellowship, it's not really like, you don't, you don't really think that you're getting um, a financial benefit, but you actually are in many cases. These programs love when students bring in external funding. So um, in my case, uh, if you bring in an external funding, they add $3,000 every year to your stipend. So for a five-year program, I made $15,000 by securing an external fellowship. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's big. So yeah. you, you do actually make more money. Well, and every program is different. So I've seen lots of right. variation. Um, you're talking about programs that are offering what we might call top-off funding. Mm-hmm. So even with an offer of full funding, that offer can grow. Um, you're right that, that you're opening doors just in the sense that, you know, 
um, a program, a graduate program is limited in how many students they can admit based on the funding that they have and the funding that their different labs have. And so if you're coming to them with three years of funding, you are an easy student to accept because yeah. they may only have to come up with two more years, yeah. whereas everyone else, they have five or so. Um, an, another consideration is um, some programs will allow you to pull in two awards at the same time. So if they have an internal award and you're bringing in an external award, you can actually have both. And wow. so your, your, what you have for the year may be closer in some of these programs to $50,000 a year to live off of. So that's actually what I wanted to ask because you said the funding was for three years. Yes. And a PhD program on average is around five to six. Right. So um, I haven't gone through the process of applying, but maybe you could also assist with answering this question. Like how would that work if you get funding for three? Where does the funding for the other two or three years come from? Typically from your graduate program. Okay. So in the sciences, uh, most programs um, are going to be offering you a funding package. Mm -hmm. And that can depend on the university. Um, some of them involve um, recruitment type fellowships. So you'll see someone who offers a, a competitive applicant, maybe a presidential fellowship or named fellowship for their first year. Those um, fellowships are designed to encourage you to choose that school over one of their competitors. Mm -hmm. um, and then they may offer you a funding package that includes some teaching assistantships or research assistantships. Um, so the, the funding can be as diverse as the programs you're applying to. But what we'll see with what we'll see with GRFP is that they'll say, OK, you'll use GRFP for your first three years, maybe. And then we'll come in with the funding that you need in year four and five. Sometimes they'll add additional years if you bring in your own funding. So a lot of programs will say if you're not done in five, then you're unfunded. They'll say if you brought in a GRFP, we can fund you into year six and year seven if needed. So there's a lot of variation there. Um, What's challenging is the timeline for all of this happening. So as an undergraduate, you're applying to NSF in the fall of your senior year, typically before your applications to graduate school are due. So graduate school applications are going to be due in the late fall into the winter. Then you're going to start hearing from your graduate programs before you know about whether you have an NSF. Um, and so you're going to... Um, generally, students in the sciences are going to start um, going on lab visits and recruitment visits to their various schools. Um, and then sometime in, it's been anywhere from mid-March to mid-April, this year it was early April, um, you would find out if you won the GRFP. And then typically you're asked to commit to a graduate school by April 15th. Mm. So the timeline is very tight. Very often um, when NSF notifies in April, a student already has a funding award. So their, their programs that are interested in them have, have accepted them and have said, here's the funding package that we're offering you. So sometimes winning a GRFP involves a renegotiation. I was about to ask because yes. I, I feel like if, if, you're, if you find out what your package is for a graduate school and then you come back and you say, well, now I have this external funding, like there must be some negotiating there. And I was also thinking if you apply to a graduate program, and they say no, let's just say, right? But then you get the GRF. Is that also like a negotiation to have? Yes, it can be. Um, it's more common, I would say, for students to move from the waiting list to accepted with our GRF yeah. award. Okay. Um, so that's where we've seen the most movement. But I have had students who, who before the GRF are leaning toward one school 
And then when they start to talk with them about funding, we'll switch to a different school because they find that the other school is able to make a more What an interesting model. dynamic. Yeah. It's a very interesting yeah. dynamic. And we're talking about making all of these decisions in yeah. a couple of weeks. Right, because, right? you know, in the fall, you're like, oh, you really want to go to these programs, whatever. These are my favorite programs right now. And then the funding comes in and you're like, I my quality of life might be so much better if I don't live in Palo Alto yeah. and don't have a good funding <laughs> package. So um, another note I wanted to add on the funding is in addition to like being more attractive to institutions within institutions, you know, there's great researchers everywhere, but not all of them might be able to fund you because of the timing of things. Maybe their grant just expired, uh, expired. Or, um, or they just haven't received some recently and they're not able to support a new graduate student. But if you come with your own money, then that's a different story. So, you know, I, I have looked uh, when I was applying at a lot of faculty and once I actually go to the school, um, I'm like, oh, you're actually not accepting students. Well, that was a waste of time. Um, mm. but, but again, if you get some sort of external internal funding, um, that, that really does give you even more flexibility. And if I've learned anything about applying to graduate school is you want to have a lot of flexibility. The other dynamic that I was thinking about as well is that if let's say you're applying to a program and they don't accept you and then, you know, just move on with your life, cry a little and then move on. <laughs> And then you get the GRF. Well, the dynamic that I was thinking is, well, they already said no to me. So, like, they already have, I guess, right. not a mentality, but, yeah. you know, they already know me in this way and they wouldn't offer me. So then I guess I'm trying to think, like, well, they just want me because of the GRF, which is then kind of like, do I want to go to a program like that? Yeah. That's the dynamic I was thinking. I think... um Graduate school admissions is so different from undergraduate admissions. So, so one thing that I would share from you know the perspective of being in a graduate school and having applied to graduate schools is that at the graduate level, many of the decisions they're making have less to do with who you are as a student and more to do with who they are. Mm -hmm. So going back to the point you just made about funding, they may look at your application and say, this would be a perfect person to work with so-and-so, but that person is we think they're leaving yeah. Um, or um, that lab doesn't have funding right now, or it's a great student, but we don't really have someone who does that kind of research. So, um, or just a cohort question, you know, a lot of times they're looking for their own diversity in their cohorts, right? They're thinking, mm -hmm. okay, we've already accepted all men. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. We need to, we need to mix this up a little bit. And so one thing to kind of, um, tell yourself, I think, in those moments is it's not about you very often. Um, it, it tends to be about them. And that's why I say I don't think it's very common to go back and renegotiate a no. Typically, if they've said no, it's really not a good fit for you. And they've tried to help you by making that determination, trying to force your way into the door and saying, well, I have funding now generally isn't going to make a difference. It's probably not the best place to support the research that you want to do. So negotiate the wait list negotiate and negotiate the, the yeses. If you want to. And the yeses for sure. Ask for a better offer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can we circle back to the, the GRS? Absolutely, because so, I didn't um, ask any, yeah, answer yeah, your question no, at all. Cover, like, yeah, how much money do you get? Um, yeah, that's the lead. That, that's that's how we keep people listening to exactly. the podcast. <laughs> so we mentioned that around the 25-minute mark. So, uh, I also want to add how, just how much I appreciate how well the entire program that we have at Texas State is structured. It's really organized. The Canvas site is just perfect. I mean, I wish some of my classes were that organized. And um, you always seem to be looking for 
improving the way that you do things. So I, I really appreciate that. And I have to, I have to be grateful for that because that was really nice. Um, so yeah, can you walk us through how you prepare students? Absolutely. So we do have a, a structured process that we have improved over time and um, we do look to improve it every year. So um, Brian and I always at the end of every cycle, my colleague, Dr. Brian Smith, who's also an external funding coordinator in the graduate college, we do um, at the end of every cycle what we call a postmortem, probably not the best term for it, but it basically means, you know, we keep notes throughout the cycle. What went well? What didn't go very well? Um, who are we maybe missing? How can we improve? And it can be anything from outreach through the advising support process all the way through the post-award process. So um, that's important to us. It's actually one of the things that I think keeps me most interested in my job. It would be really boring to do the same thing every year. Right. Yes, the students would be different, but um, I really I really like building programs and changing and evolving. And we typically, um, we don't ever really do the same talk twice. And we don't really ever run the same cycle twice because we're always looking to make it better. So I'm glad you noticed that mm -hmm. because it's, it's the result of a lot of hard work. So our process is structured. Um, and I think it's really helpful to hear from a student who's gone through it that how much that's appreciated because I will tell you we encounter a lot of students who initially balk at the structure, right? They see deadlines and tasks and things that I have to do and they think, well, I, you said I can apply on my own, so I'm just going to apply on my own. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, so the structure um, is somewhat dependent on NSF's timeline um, and when they start the new program every year. So right now, April, we don't yet know, we don't yet have what NSF calls a solicitation. So NSF puts out a call for proposals every year. Um, and that solicitation is not yet out for next year. So when students are asking me about NSF, I can't tell them what the deadline will be for next year or how many awards NSF is going to give out next year or some things. But we do know that the program is going to run, right? The, the latest White House budget includes funding for NSF and specifically funding for this program. So um, there are some general pieces that we can always share with students who are considering it, but we typically are dependent on NSF releasing that solicitation before we can really start working on an application. Um, last year, that was in July. Oh, I'm really yeah. hoping that's not July again this year, but it could be. Um, is that early or, or is that that's late? late? That's um, late. Yeah, it, it it's late and it's, um, it's very late, actually. So um, in previous years, NSF has had three-year solicitations for this program. So for example, in 2018, I could look at the solicitation and gave me the information and deadlines all the way through 2020. Mm. That was wonderful. Um, but last year they started releasing them one year at a time and they mm. pushed it back from an April release to a July release. Mm. So that's changed. That's a good example of something that's out of our control, yeah. but it changes our advising process because I used to do outreach in the spring and then I treated the NSF application cycle as a summer cycle. I was able to say, let's use this period before classes start to get a lot of work done on your applications. We can't do that as much as we used to. So um, the process as it is now is what I can speak to. Um, we're anticipating a summer release at some point of the solicitation. Um, as soon as that solicitation is released, I hold workshops and information sessions for students about NSF. 
Um, so a lot of general information, but then we also share with them what our internal process is for applying. We do have a Canvas site, um, and that's something that's a, a labor of love for sure. Um, it's also due to the generosity of previous Texas State recipients. So one of the huge benefits in our Canvas site is samples from previous recipients. Mm -hmm. So um, students either who were at Texas State when they received it or were alumni and have generously shared with Texas State students. So that's, I think, one of the, one of the great benefits of Canvas is samples. Um, but then we also have a structured process. Last year, we ran what we called a boot camp. Um, so essentially in August, the, the process started with working through a series of assignments, so several drafts. Um, and then um, we started working with students one-on-one -on -one once classes began. And drafts of what, just yeah. to be Thank specific. you. For, yeah. yeah. Um, there are two statements that you have to write for this application. Um, those have changed over time. So again, if this changes, don't don't <laughs> quote me at this moment of time. In 2022, I can say this. So uh, there are two statements. One is called the personal relevant background and future goals statement. That is currently a three-page statement. And then there's a graduate research plan, which is two pages. So there's an application that both of those statements get uploaded into. Um, but those two statements are what I would say take the most work for students. We start working with students on the personal statement first. Couple of reasons for that. Number one, in the summer, not all students have access to their graduate advisor. Um, so if a student is maybe across the country participating in an REU, or maybe as a graduate student, they're not yet on campus, they haven't even met their advisor mm. yet, asking them to draft their research plan without an advisor's assistance would not be very helpful. So we typically take the strategy of working on the personal statement first. Um, and that's what we have students draft um, in Canvas. And then, as you said, that's that's um, supported by a one-on-one -on -one advising structure. So we don't just say, you know, this is a self-paced process in Canvas. Good luck to you. Here are a bunch of resources. We then meet with our students. Um, it's really last year. It was basically a three-month uh, application process. Um, we meet with students one-on-one. -on -one. And we give them feedback on their drafts and we work with them all the way through mid-October when these applications are typically due um, on their applications. So most of the work that, I, that we do is focused on those two statements, but we do um, assist students with other parts of the application. So there are a couple of boxes you need to fill out with your awards and honors and accomplishments. You have letters of recommendation. We help you choose good letter writers. We actually communicate with the letter writers. Um, many of our faculty are familiar with NSF. Some of them have been fellows themselves or career awardees. They don't need a lot of guidance, but we also have faculty who are less familiar with NSF. And so in those cases, we offer even to read their letters confidentially and give them feedback so that mm. they can make sure that they're writing a compelling letter. Yeah. So we think about it as Yes, absolutely supporting the student applicant, but we're really supporting the entire application development process by working closely with everyone else. Yeah, who's that supporting was you. that was my favorite part. I was like, oh wow, you even helped my letter writer, Dr. Peterson, who hasn't written a lot of letters for graduate school yet. Yeah. Um, as a new assistant professor. Yeah. I'd like to ask a question real quick before Please, we maybe yeah. move on. Um, you mentioned a point of how a graduate student who may not know their graduate advisor yet you know, writing that proposal, that second document, um, that's challenging, right? And so I guess my question is, in the undergrad, how important is, you know, already being in a research group 
is to the GRF? Is it possible to basically, I guess, join a research group in August and then do the GRF application? I'm, it sounds to me like it's more difficult. Um, so I would say one of the things GRF is looking for is um, undergraduate research experience. So you're going to be a more competitive candidate if you've had more undergraduate research experience. Um, so most of our students have had um, have been part of a research group for some time, I would say, by the time they're applying for GRF. Um, some, many of them have participated in REUs. Um, that's research experiences for undergraduates. Um, that's also an NSF-funded fun program. Um, but that there's some variation there. So I, I have had some students who maybe joined a research group just their junior year, and then they're applying in their senior year. So that was that yeah. was me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think what we should probably talk about the graduate research plan a little bit because it's a very unique document. Um, many undergraduates find that very intimidating because again, you're, you haven't even necessarily chosen the schools that you're applying to yet for your master's or PhD program. You're still considering possible future mentors and NSF is saying, what is your graduate research going to be about? Mm -hmm. right? So what I always share with students is that is not a binding plan. NSF knows as an undergraduate that what you end up researching will depend a lot on where you get in and who your advisor is. So it, that doesn't mean that that plan can't be detailed and specific. It does have to be, but it means that they don't, they're, one way to think about it is NSF is funding the student, not the research. Okay. So they are looking for, they're doing a holistic review of your application who you are, what your background is, and they're looking for your potential in a lot of different areas. Leadership is one category that they're looking at, um, what they might call broader impacts, outreach that you've done in the community. And the research plan is an important part of that, but it's not its not the only part of it. It sounds to me like the NSF wants to know that you can scientifically write. That's a very good way of putting it. So they're looking for... Um, it has to be a solid research plan in the sense that you can develop research questions, that you have appropriate hypotheses, that you've chosen the right methods, maybe the right statistical analysis. Um, all of those pieces need to be in place because they're looking for how do you think? Mm -hmm. um, and are you doing a project that comes across as an undergraduate research project or are you pushing it a little bit mm. and trying to do something that's a bit more transformative within your field. So they're looking for, for not, you know, it can't just be uh, undergraduate thesis level research. It does need to be something that seems believable for the graduate level. So that's, it, that's a very challenging document. Um, most successful undergraduates are heavily supervised in the development of that proposal by their mentors. So um, I do have some students who say I'm not getting much help with this or I don't know who to ask. They don't tend to do very well in the process because I think for reviewers, it does read as not quite up to the mm -hmm. level that you need. Mm -hmm. So you came to me with a really solid plan, but I know that Dr. Peterson was very involved in giving you feedback. Um, actually, he was not. Oh, really? um, yeah. So and and I, I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but I did not get the GRF this cycle and I will be reapplying and we can talk about that later. But um. So Chris, uh, who has also been on the podcast, did get the GRF and, and huge congratulations to Chris. And we both come from the same lab, which is huge as well. Um, so a big difference in what I think where our research plan is, his was like a continuation of the research he was already doing. 
So it was very clear and he, there, was a, there was a good rationale for everything that he was proposing he was going to do based off of preliminary data that he had got so in his really lab. Yes. Okay. Mine, I decided to deviate from what I was doing in my research lab and pursue something that I found was really interesting and tangentially related. Um, and and uh, this was Dr. Peterson's approach with both of us. He actually did not really want to have much to say or much guidance in either of our research plans so that in his letter he could write, I didn't really do anything. This is their intellectual property, not mine, um, which is sometimes a concern, I guess, in his eyes is that like the PI kind of writes the plan for them. And they definitely shouldn't be doing that. Correct. Um, that's not ethical. So that was his ability to say like, I did not really guide them at all. This is their own intellectual intellectual property. Um, and so that was his strategy. Um, and I, and I will, so that was a big difference between my application and Chris's is like the approach and the research plan. Um, regardless, I, um, uh, I was given good compliments on my research plan. I think that's still something you can do. Uh, and like I said, it was tangentially related to what I was doing. So it wasn't like a total, like just ballpark. Let me design a random experiment. Um, I would definitely not advise that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, but I mean, part of my motiv motivation was I was just very interested in the idea. Um, and, and briefly, if anyone's interested, I was just hypothesizing that if I change the active side of an enzyme, I could use it as a microplastic detection method. Uh, instead of a microplastic degradation method. Um, and, and, and you know, I might reapply with the same plan. Um, yeah, I think what you're pointing to is there's certainly variation here. I think, um, so just to be really clear, the application does have to be yours, and that applies to the help that I give you as well. And so, um, you know, it would be very easy if I saw a first draft of a student's document and I said, well, just send it to me and I'll send you a bunch of edits back and change it all for you and fix it. I can't do that ethically right. either. Right. So as part of the application process, you have to certify that the documents are your own. Um, you can certainly get help and feedback from people on those documents, but you have to be the one whose idea it is and who has done the writing. Advisors take different approaches to that. Um, so some advisors are much more hands-on than, than others. I would say, though, um, as much as the advisor can't write it for you, um, most advisors that we work with are, um, are, are, are doing what I would say are complementary meetings to our meetings. So very often I'll meet, I'll meet with a student and in the same week they're also meeting with their advisor and talking about their research plan. Um, and and I would say I'm dependent on that kind of help, right? Mm -hmm. I am not a yeah, scientist. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I'm a very good lay reader, um, but I, I tell students very frankly, I'm not always going to be able to, see, be able to see the holes in your research plan. So if you skip a step, I'm not a chemist. Mm -hmm. Your reviewers are going to notice that you skipped a step. And so you really need someone who is a subject matter expert to be giving you feedback on that plan. Um, even if they're a little bit hands off, at least pointing out to you, hey, you might want to read this or you might want to reconsider that. Yeah. You really need to be supported by a research advisor in this process, because, again, I'm not going to be able to tell you the flaws in those mm -hmm. that research mm -hmm. plan. Um, so uh, we kind of mentioned some of the differences in applications between me and Chris. Um, could you just talk a little bit about common pitfalls that you've seen in your years of experience with helping students? Yes, I, I could. I'll start with maybe what is the most obvious one, but I would say as much as you are allowed to apply independently, I do not recommend that you mm -hmm. try to take on this application independently. That may 
that may seem really obvious, but we have students every year who tell me after the fact, oh, I applied and I'm thinking, why, why did you do that on your own? Um, so it's, we don't require that you work with the graduate college. In fact, we had two recipients this year who were mentored in the um, Department of Biology by um, their advisor successfully. That's amazing. That's excellent. Oh, okay. um, so they don't, ha you don't have to work with us, but we want you to be getting help from someone who knows NSF and who knows how to help you. So that's one of the biggest pitfalls I see. Um, maybe another pitfall, even pre-application is talking yourself out of it. You know, I, we can go back to that outreach component. We have a big drop off between the students who are eligible and the students who put themselves out there. So there's a risk involved, but um, not to sound too cliche, but I would say, you know, yes, it's competitive. We're going to be very frank throughout the process about how competitive the process is. We're not going to try to get your hopes up, but you won't get anything if you don't apply. And we have, I think that's a um, maybe a unique challenge at a place like Texas State is I have a lot of students who, who get in their heads and have some imposter syndrome and start to believe you know, when you see the list of recipients and some of the schools on that list. You and think, they're outstanding people with yeah. crazy backgrounds. And it's, it can be so overwhelming. I remember me and Chris were like just looking at previous um, awardees as application materials. And we were like, yeah. oh, my gosh. You can really talk yourself out. <laughs> yeah, so, absolutely. Um, you know, we if we don't think that you are ready, um, if we think you should wait until you're in graduate school, we will tell you that. We will tell you that we don't think you have quite the right combination of background and experiences yet. But if we're giving you feedback that we think you should try, we would at least encourage you to consider it and not be your own worst enemy there. Mm -hmm. I think within the application process, um, pitfalls, there are a number of them. Um, one has to do with the selection of letter writers. Uh, it's really important that your letter writers know you well. NSF is expecting a detailed two-page letter from your faculty. So one of the common questions we get is, you know, should I ask somebody who has a really, who's famous um, in my department or maybe my department chair, somebody that I think is going to have a lot of weight? Um, and those letters typically are not the best letters. Um, so um, if a faculty member is, is able to write a single sentence about you, you know, the student works with so-and-so, that person has told me he's good that does not really convey yeah. the level of detail and specificity. So the choice of letter writers is very important. Um, I think uh, there are a lot of pitfalls that can happen in the choice of research topic. Um, again, NSF is looking for, again, this can sound very intimidating as an undergraduate, especially, but they're looking for research that is transformative, that is exciting, that is cutting edge. Um, sometimes we'll use the word sexy, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, a lot of students will propose research that's um, certainly sophisticated, but they may not be able to connect it to why that research matters. Um, and you have to be able to tell the story of why your research matters and why other people will care about your research as part of this project. There's there so many pitfalls, yeah. um, but I think that those would be a few of them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I personally really appreciated because whenever we were um, building, you know, this agenda, you could say, um, I was like, we should definitely ask like potential pitfalls because as a potential applicant, like <laughs> I want to know like what I could mess up. And, you know, if mm -hmm. I know that now, you know, I could start thinking about those things like who are going to be my letter writers, you know, what, you know, research statement do I want to put out? You know, I could have that conversation with myself now. 
rather than, you know, in August or, you know, later yeah. down the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, something I also want to mention is a lot of people listening are probably like, oh my gosh, this is so much work. <laughs> I have, I'm taking 16 credits or whatever. And, and these are fair, fair concerns. Um, in fact, I, I treated this as a full course. And I think that's a good strategy. Uh, I treated applying to the GRF as a full credit course. And um, all I want to say is um, a lot of the stuff that you're putting all this time and energy into, well, you're planning on applying to graduate school. And what do you think the application to graduate school looks like? You have a personal statement, you have letter writers, you have a CV. So the work, yes, it's a lot, but the application for the GRF is actually in October, um, again, as of right now. Uh, and, and, and graduate school applications come not too long after. So it forces you to work ahead of the system to apply to graduate school. And you have all these materials already prepared and it really reduces the load before finals. That's just my personal experience. Uh, yeah, that, uh, that's an excellent point. And it takes us back in some ways to the question about why should I do this? What yeah. are the benefits? So as an undergrad in particular, um, many of our applicants tell me, I, I took the materials that I worked on with you and I used whole sections of that application in my applications to graduate school. Yes, yes. Um, so, so absolutely you are um, in some ways getting work done that you need to get done anyway. And then many of our students tell us, you know, I didn't win the GRF, but I got into my dream school and I got yeah. into my dream school with full funding. I don't think I would have done as well if I hadn't applied to the GRF. Yeah. Just absolutely not. I don't think so. Yeah. So we, we hear that story a lot. And honestly, we think of that as a success, right? Again, we are thrilled if you win a GRF, but about 13 to 15% of applications are funded annually. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, those are high stakes, right? So, um, but I can tell you this year and in previous years, how many of our students have gone on to great success. And that's ultimately what we want, right? We want students who have high potential, not to count themselves out of graduate school. We want them to go to graduate school. We want them to be diversifying STEM fields, and we want them to do that with full funding. Mm -hmm. So another huge benefit of, of spending the time, and you're right to be honest about the time. I try to be very upfront with students about this is not an application that you can whip up, whip up and submit your first draft, right? No, you're going to have to write many, many drafts. Um, our goal is to have you submit the most polished application you can to have a chance to be competitive. That takes time. Different students take different amounts of time, right? We've had yes. some students who do this in three or four drafts per statement. I certainly I've had students who have done eight or 10 drafts instead. And so you also need to be patient with yourself in terms of your own writing process and style and how many drafts it takes you. Um, we have a process that is designed to help students in both scenarios do well in advance. Um, but I think that's another huge benefit is, is these materials have multiple uses and um, you shouldn't, I, th I think grad school timing for applications is very stressful, right? I, mm -hmm. These are typically due right around the time that you're taking final exams or you're trying to celebrate winter holidays with your families and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this application is due. So it's really helpful if you've started that process in the summer and you feel like you have a lot of materials that you've already developed that are that are done essentially by mid-October. And then you can customize them for each school. Yes. So as you said, you can tailor them. You obviously don't want to just submit your NSF application <laughs> to your grad programs, but you can then you can then do the work of 
researching your programs and tailoring the materials mm-hmm. to those programs. And that part, after you've done this long three-page personal statement, that part is so much easier. You're just cutting out sentences. That, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that, yeah. that that was a huge relief. Um, can you briefly just talk about why um, undergrads, again, most of the people listening are probably undergrads. And if you're a graduate student, welcome. Uh, <laughs> but why undergraduates versus graduates? Why why should you apply if you're in a like, junior year right now? That's a great question. So um, students are eligible to apply for GRF, as I said, early in their careers. What that means to NSF is you can apply either as an undergraduate senior, you can apply as a student who has a bachelor's degree but has not yet started graduate studies, and then you can apply again as a graduate student. However, as a graduate student, you have a limitation between you can apply in your first year of graduate school or your second year of graduate school. As an undergrad, you have essentially a free chance to apply. So we really encourage students to apply as undergraduates. Um, the, the reason NSF changed the eligibility rules around graduate students is actually because they wanted to encourage more undergraduates mm-hmm. to apply and they wanted to give more awards to undergraduates. So I typically tell undergraduate students, you're at your most competitive as an undergraduate. That's when NSF truly wants to fund you. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is is several fold, but uh, one of the things that NSF has found is that um, the graduate school application and funding process selects a lot of um, diverse students out of it. And so if you are um, supporting more students from the undergraduate studies into graduate studies, you are truly diversifying that pipeline and meeting your diversity goals. So that's one major reason. Another reason is that you are not compared as an undergraduate to graduate student applicants. I was about to ask. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, you certainly still have to be accomplished, um, but your accomplishments, you know, for example, I would say as an undergraduate applicant, you're not expected to have publications, right? If you do have one, great, that's really going to stand out, but you're not being compared to graduate students who have been in graduate school for a couple of years. So, you're most competitive as an undergraduate, and there's no penalty for applying as an undergraduate. And so if anything else, you might want to, you know, you can consider applying. You will also get reviews. So mm-hmm. you get reviewers' comments. That's mm-hmm. what you have to work with now, right? And so you have the benefit of seeing how your application was read and reviewed, and you get to then make some changes to your application. You can make decisions like, do I want to develop this research plan or do I maybe want to do something based more on what, I, what I'm more familiar with? Um, you can go back to the drawing board and tweak your application and then resubmit it once as a graduate student. And that's your final shot. So some students will think of it almost like a pre-application. You know, let's see what happens. Let's yeah. get those reviews. There's nothing comments. to lose. There's nothing yes. to lose whatsoever. Um, so it's... it's um, definitely recommended that you apply as an undergraduate. Good. I think it's important to mention that because I was talking to an undergrad the other day. She was like, my gosh, it's so much work. Uh, but there, there's truly some benefits to doing there's it. There's some huge benefits here. to doing it. Could you, um, just to showcase some of the people um, who, or not, maybe not all the people, but um, just talk about the success of the program at Texas State with the GRF. Absolutely. Um, we've talked about Chris, um, who, correct me if I'm wrong, but is the first biochemistry applicant to get the GRF. Absolutely. So Chris um, won this year. Um, He is our first ever biochemistry applicant, so we're really excited for him. Um, We also have, um, for them, I should say, (laughs) Um, so this, just broadly speaking, I would say this um, 
this year ties our most successful year ever. Um, wow. So we had four awardees at the graduate, uh, four awardees between the undergraduate and graduate levels. Um, that is our most successful, tying our most successful year ever. So we're still a fairly small program. You're going to see schools that win, you know, 25, 50 of these a year. Um, when I started at Texas State um, in 2016, we had one GRFs before, but not consistently every year. And very often, maybe one or two was a, was a banner year for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been much more consistent in we've, with the kind of support services that we're now offering our students. We win GRFs every year. Um, they range, you know, depending on the year, it depends a lot on, on who applies, right? The, the quality of applicants that come forward. Um, but but four for us is a very good year. We do hope to always be growing that number. We're dependent in some ways on how many NSF funds. So one of the interesting confusions maybe this year um, is that NSF in its solicitation was hoping to award 2,500 of these this year, and they actually awarded less than 2,200. And so that's a little bit of a mystery right now. I wonder right? if I would have made it. it was that, <laughs> yes, yes, you yeah. Um, I don't want to say that in a way that makes you disappointed, but um, that's you know. So we're always a little bit. You have to remember that these are uh, federal appropriations, right? They're dependent on the program getting funded. Wait, I'm sorry. Um, so you said twenty. 2,200 people won the GRF? It's slightly less than that. So I think the actual number is maybe 2,193. Don't quote me on that. But that's like yes. in the U.S.? In the U.S. Wow. Like a lot I didn't, of these I didn't, awards given every year. I'm actually thinking the contrary. I thought it, there was a, a bigger amount. Like of of winners. Okay. It's yeah. a it's wow. It's quite small. Or I I was thinking it was quite small. Like I I'm thinking in terms of like the U S. and people applying. I don't know why I thought the number of winners was way higher. Nope. Wow. Yeah. So. Oh, this is really competitive. <laughs> it's very competitive, and NSF does not release a lot of data every year. We know typically they receive anywhere from thirteen thousand to sixteen thousand applications for those approximately two thousand awards. So. It's very hard to give year-to-year percentage rates, mm-hmm. but we typically tell students, you know, the funding rate has typically um, been between 13 and 16% of the applicants. Wow. So it's very competitive, wow. yes. Congrats to Chris. Yeah, I, I mean, I know it's a, it's a big award, but I didn't, I guess I didn't quite visualize it as it should be. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so this year, there's some interesting trends this year, I guess, for us. Um, all of our students are in STEM, and that hasn't been true for a few mm. years. I've been actually working really hard to get our social science students aware of NSF. So last year, our two recipients were in anthropology and geography. Um, this year is in some ways a return to a more traditional representation for us. So we have two students from biology, actually in the same lab. Um, so Dr. Fies's lab in, in biology. Um, that's really unusual to have two students in the same lab win. Um, and then we have uh, Chris coming from biochemistry, an undergraduate. And then we have our first ever recipient from the Department of Mathematics. Oh. Um, so a doctoral student, Micah Swartz, um, who was awarded in the Department of Mathematics. That's great. Yeah. So, um, so the, very proud yeah, of them. Yeah. The, the, the point is, in the chemistry and biochemistry department, people are winning now. Yes. Um, if you're considering, please apply. We don't have nearly, I would say, I would say for chemistry and biochemistry in particular, we don't have nearly as many applicants as I think we should have. Correct. So Which I, is a big reason why you're here. Yes, I'd really <laughs> like more of our chemistry and biochemistry students to consider it. We have very strong students in your program. 
Um, and so some of it is about having very active faculty members who are going to encourage students, but we're hoping to create some partnerships. Um, we're hoping to get involved. We've talked about working with Dr. Lewis and the URISE program. We've talked about um, coming to the Chemi REU this summer. So I have some good outreach plan to try to bridge some of those. Yeah, I was going to say PREM um, with Dr. Betancourt and Dr. Martin. Oh, yeah. We'll, um, we'll tell you about HO I know uh, the, um, I always say that the people in HO to me are like, the top 1% because every time we all give like an overview of like what we've done or what we're doing this summer, it's always like this and MIT and like this and Stanford and this and that. Uh, I don't know if those people are aware of the GRF. Yeah. yeah. And again, yeah. that's, that's a great example of an institutional barrier, right? I'm in the graduate college. So my ability to interact with undergraduates and be aware of the research that they're doing is very limited. Um, and so I am really dependent on programs and faculty being aware of this process and encouraging. Yeah, I could get you in contact with David. He's the director of HSM. Yeah. Thank you. Because me, me, me and Chris were, we were together the whole time, kind of helping each other out, um, if not just for moral support. <laughs> yeah. um, but I could think of at least five other students that are in our class that could have, you know, submitted competitive applications had they looked into it or heard about it from their PI. So, um it's important to get more people, at least get it on their minds. So really glad you've come today. Um, Can we're, we're I compliment kind of... you on something? Or oh, yeah, something sure. Yeah. I, think, I think maybe you're pointing at something that I think you did very well with Chris. And, and I mentioned it to you both during the application process. A lot of our students, when they're working with me on this process, think of every other student from Texas State as their competition. Oh, yeah. Enemy, yeah. if you will. Um, and I've I've long tried to get our students to work together. I think you naturally did in some ways because you were in the same lab, but I found your relationship and your support of each other to be really lovely and genuine. Hmm. Um, and I know that when you say congratulations, it is truly heartfelt. I think, I think that's so important because this can be, this can be a very hard process and making it a lonely process in addition is not wise. I agree. So I think one thing you did very well is you, encouraged each other you supported each other um i don't even know how much you read each other's work necessarily yeah. but i think it was more it's almost the moral support as you said that's really important but i would actually like more of our students to help each other um because as you can see we we can win several awards at the institution it doesn't you know we had two students who won in the same lab mm -hmm. They're clearly not thought of by the reviewers as competition. They probably didn't even have the same reviewers. Mm -hmm. So reviewers don't think at that level. And so I think we have we have the potential to have a lot more recipients, but I think we also need to develop a culture of care and support for each other instead of competition. So that's yeah. one thing I another maybe pitfall that I would encourage yeah. students to yeah. avoid. I can I get I mean, yeah, Chris, uh, since like sophomore year has been my greatest competition. We're always, you know, trying to uh, push each other to, you know, get the grade that we want or apply to this scholarship or fellowship that we want. And so Chris has been very um, helpful in, in my process of all those things. And and just the moral support alone would be super useful. And, and sometimes we would look at each other's CVs, for example, and draft those together and provide tips it was jokingly all throughout fall semester, we'd be in our teaching lab just talking about, so, you know, t tell me about how you formatted this on your seat. Like, it's just stuff like, because that was all that was on our minds at that point and, yeah. and all the stress and stuff. So it was really relieving to be able to decompress a little bit with Chris. 
Um, in closing, you know, we, we only have a couple questions left for you. Um, how'd you get involved in all this? Um, you, you got a PhD in comparative literature. And by the way, you're the best English teacher I've ever had. Um, you taught me very important things um, grammatically that I feel embarrassed uh, about sometimes. But um, yeah, I mean, as far as helping my writing, yeah, you, you were very helpful. So how did you find yourself in this role? That's interesting. So as I mentioned, I think earlier, I had no idea this professional path even right. existed. I took a more traditional academic path. So um, I did my master's and PhD at UT Austin um, in comparative literature. Um, that's essentially English language and literature studies plus additional languages. So I was also um, having to... Um, having to read and study literatures in Spanish and French um, and German. I always think I passed a German exam, but I would not remember at this point, but um, additional literatures as well. So I was preparing for a career as an English professor um, and I went on to the academic job market. I started my career as an assistant professor in a department of English. In addition to, I was at a small women's Catholic college. And so when you are at a small college, um, we had a department, I think, of five professors. So, and we had a graduate program as well. Um, you cannot specialize in your area of research. You have to teach a wide variety of classes. So, um, my background was in African literature. I got to teach one course, I think, a semester or a year in African literatures. But my other courses that I was assigned were English composition. Um, and professional and technical writing. So I was teaching is. grant writing. There it is. I'm getting yeah. to the answer yeah, to yeah. the question. So um, I, I was teaching professional and technical writing to both undergraduate and graduate students. I also had the experience of applying for funding as a graduate student and as a faculty member. So I had had some success in that area myself. Um, and then, and I, so I was an assistant professor. I had a very strange um, experience of um, making a, a difficult professional decision the summer I was, I was applying for tenure. Um, so my husband received a job offer at UT Austin. Um, it made a lot of sense for our family, but it meant leaving my academic mm. position. So I resigned. Um, and actually when we moved back here, I did not have a job. It was one of those true mm. leaps of faith moments, but, um, I had a two-year-old at the time I found, um, the academic path to be very challenging as a young mother. Um, I, I have no doubt that I would have received tenure. Um, my department was very supportive, but I was not really feeling professionally fulfilled. Um, I was working as most junior professors do, you know, 80 hours a week. Um, I was putting my daughter to bed and going upstairs and grading and preparing for classes. And I felt like I was dropping, I, I was never doing everything right. So if I was a really good faculty member that day or a really good advisor for my students, I was a terrible parent is mm. what I felt, right? Wow. So I, I just didn't feel um, that that was the path for me personally. I didn't see the sustainability of that. So um, we moved to Texas, back to Texas, because this is um, home in some ways for me. And I kept hearing on NPR, I think, these advertisements for Texas State and the Whitliff Collections and these... The Whitliff co yeah. Collection caught your attention? Yeah, because you're making these... Well, for a literature <laughs> yeah, person, yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Making these amazing yeah. acquisitions, right? And I kept thinking, when I was here last, it was Southwest Texas. Mm. Reputation was party school, <laughs> not... You know, and I just thought, 
what is going on at Texas State? And so um, I, I probably would not even have looked for jobs here had it not been for some of that curiosity. What's going on at Texas State? And so um, it was a slow process of, of rethinking kind of what am I going to do, right? I'm trained as an English professor. What am I good at? Um, and then this position was advertised and I looked at it and I thought, I can do that. I know I, I, I've never heard of this before, but I can do that. That's a skill set that I have. What was really fun for me is I was the first person who occupied this position. So I got to build an office mm -hmm. um, and I'm really grateful that I've been given a lot of freedom to um, design the programs that our students needed. So my dean was very supportive. She didn't say you have to support this program and not this program, or we have to win this this amount of money. Um, the professional development was a huge part of our ethos from the beginning. Um, and I got to choose the programs to focus on that I thought would be a good fit for our students. And so NSF, coming back to your question again, NSF was one of those programs where I thought, okay, we're winning one or two of these every few years, but this is a program that's perfectly suited for students coming from an HSI. Um, and so we developed a program my very first year and we've been building it and growing it um, to become what it is today. But that's how I came to fellowship advising. And um, it's been a, it's been a circuitous path, but it is um, going back to, to some of those bigger questions of, uh, I love my job. I think I have the best job in the world. Um, at, compared to how I felt before, I, I really have, um, I have a lot more more um, freedom. I, I'm still teaching. So I'm still teaching writing, in fact. Um, but this is an, I don't know if we've even had this conversation. It's very interesting to me because a lot of the time I think I'm doing something very similar to what I was trained to do and what I was doing as a faculty member. But I'm no longer grading. And I think that's really significant because I always felt like with my students that I was on their side. So I would have student writing conferences with students who were in my composition classes and I would give them feedback. The response from my students was often, okay, well, what do I have to do to get an A? Right. So it was very motivated by the grade. Taking grading out of these writing discussions has been really revolutionary to me because all of a sudden students get that I have really good intentions and that I'm trying to help them. And you're focused on what can I do to improve and you understand that I'm here to try to improve your writing and help you do better. I, I have said multiple times, if I ever do teach again, I probably would would use an ungrading style, which is what yeah. a lot of people are moving toward because I just have seen firsthand how unhelpful grading is when it comes to writing progress. Wow. So. That's the long story. Yeah, bro. I, yeah, I was going to say, I, I have two things before I forget, and then we move on and they get lost in space. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned two things. One thing is what you just said about, you know, students who are driven by the grade they're going to get in the class. Um, I find a lot of, um, I'll just say, pre-medical students uh, that take these courses like Organic 1, or organic chemistry one, or organic chemistry two, um, and are just kind of like there for the requirement per se, uh, and also for the A, 
and then how that would look in an application. And I think they kind of missed the point that, like, at least for me personally, organic chemistry taught me problem solving and perseverance, to be honest. And that's missed because the point is memorizing and then moving forward. And it's not understanding what you're doing. And I think once you go deeper than just a grade, go deeper than this is a, I don't know, a line in my transcript, you start really enjoying the course and really understanding why uh, my professor was Dr. Allison, really understanding why Dr. Allison is so enthusiastic when he talks about a reaction that almost blew up and, you know, he starts going into all these details and I find so interesting. I remember my pre-med counterparts would just, I vividly remember them saying, can we go back to like solving the problem? And in my head, I was like, you're missing the point. Like you're, you're missing the, the enjoyment of Dr. Allison talking about something that happened in real life that relates to the problem that we're doing because you are in a time constraint that you want to leave because then your next grade comes in. Yeah. And I'm, I'm chuckling because as a graduate student, one of my jobs at UT Austin was I was a TA once for um, a course called Greek and Latin roots for medical terminology and they were the worst students that I've ever had in my entire teaching. Shout career. out to them. <laughs> but it was exactly that the student population for that class was exactly the same. They were very close minded. They didn't want to explore any issues. They didn't want to play with words in any way. It was just, I need to learn this and I need to pass the class. Many of them cheated. So they weren't even they weren't even trying to pursue it in the right way, but I, I I found the same thing sometimes. And I think that's, of course, not to say that every student in pre-med is like that, but I do think that's that goes back to the kind of open-mindedness that you need to have in an application process like this. You have to be willing to learn. And the approach that that I take with teaching writing is I could fix it for you very easily. You know, you could give me your draft and I could move the comma. What I, what I try to do in my advising is teach you an English concept when I see a pattern of students writing. This is something that you don't know. It's okay that you don't know it. You may never have been taught this. Yeah, active but, versus passive yeah, language. Stuff but I can teach important. you this, and my I don't want you to need me forever, right? My goal is to help you learn something and then take that skill with you into your career. Um, so that, that goes back to that professional development piece, but I think, I think it's an empowering way of teaching writing. A lot of students and a lot of scientists are afraid of writing. You may have gravitated toward the sciences because you weren't a strong writer. I, I know many science faculty who say, I never comment on a student's writing because I don't feel again, competent to comment on the grammar. I just, I focus on the content. And so, um, Again, it, it's not meant to be a critique. It's not meant to be a bad grade, but it's how do we take what you do know and give you some additional skills so that you can take those with you? And um, I, I, you know, again, I think that's, I think that's really valuable, and I hope I hope that it's empowering because so many students I think just have in their mind, I'll never be good at this, and it's like this is really simple actually. Like I can, I truly can teach you a comma rule or or a grammatical rule. And hopefully um, I try to use real world examples. Let's take it out of your writing for a second and, you know, um, 
use more of a fun example and and get you to master a concept but that that's intended to be something that you take with you and and you don't need to keep me ha- having me edit your writing. I won't be here for the rest of your yeah. life. So the other the other point that I really liked that you mentioned was that um, you talked about how at some point in your life you felt like you were either a good teacher or a good mother. Yeah. It was not you know at the same time, and we briefly explored it with Alan in our last podcast. But if you just listen to the first, I don't know how long we've been going, but for the first thirty minutes of this podcast, you know, we are presenting a stellar person doing tremendous things but a person doesn't get that way just out of nowhere you have these experiences that make you rethink your choices make you reflect on the life that you're living and the life that you want to keep living and i feel like that's not mentioned enough because per usual we just see the end product and then congratulate those who get there but we never really go back and say well, actually, it wasn't all rainbows in heaven, you know, all the time. You know, there was this part in your life where you were generally asking yourself, like, I'm not fulfilling, you know, what I feel like I should be fulfilling. And like I said, we briefly covered it with Alon in our last podcast. But I feel like a lot of students could, could relate in that because, you know, we're asked to do so many things just curriculum related and then to be a quote-unquote competitive applicant we have to do research and we have to do extracurricular activities that will show leadership and outreach and then lord and behold if you don't have a good grade that might affect your gpa and it causes some internal stress and i feel like we forget that this is normal and this is like the journey that you should enjoy so that when you get there you just go i went through all this to get to where i am today and I feel at peace. I feel like I fulfilled what I needed to fulfill. Yeah, mental health is a really important part of our advising process. Um, and what I mean by that is, I, I think it's helpful when our end goal is not having the student win the fellowship at all costs. There are some costs that are not worth it. And so one of the things that we try very hard to do in our advising practice is to really form meaningful relationships with our students to get to know them. And I think, you know, you would you would say, you know, we, we start most advising appointments with checking in. Yeah. You know, how yeah. are you? How has your week been going? Most of the time it's like, oh, very stressed. Yeah. <laughs> very stressed, but it's good to at least decompress. Even like yeah. we would bond about how stressed you are during the week and yeah. or yeah, it's beautiful weather today. It's actually been a good day. You know, yeah. stuff like that has been. I remember it was almost like a therapy session in my week because it was typically on Monday. It that way. Yeah, and I think, um, <clears throat> but that is that is intentional. I can tell you, you know, when a student is, when we're hearing normal amounts of stress, so there's some balance yeah. act. But when we're hearing maybe productive stress, I'm stressed out, but I'm doing well. I can control mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Um, we can we can connect. We can kind of decompress. We can help you break this up into small pieces and and help you move towards your goal. We also have students who we have very frank conversations with at some point in the application process where we say, "Is this really what should be your focus right now?" So when we see students struggling, we don't. This is always extra, as you said. It's in addition to coursework and research and everything else. We also have students who have life happens in the middle of these application processes. Um, Student, you know, COVID was a really good example. Our students were experiencing real losses, maybe at a magnitude that they hadn't been before. And so 
again, I think an advising model that helps us focus on the student and not the award helps us say at certain moments, you know, I'm not going to tell you that you can't apply, but I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing on your face, I'm seeing in your body language that, that you're really struggling right now. And I'm not sure that this is the thing that you need on your plate. This may not be the time to take that on. And um, that's really important to us. I think it maybe comes from, from personal experience with that, but um, no application is worth certain sacrifices. Um, and, and there are really unhealthy levels of stress where we do worry and we do have those conversations with our students and with their advisors. I think that's really important. Um, I, yeah, I, I would just say again, I have, um, I feel like I have the best of both worlds. You know, I'm, I'm doing what I love. I love, I love writing. I love giving feedback on writing. I love working with students. One of the things that's fun for me is I get to support your projects. So I get to get to know your research. Um, I read about research from all parts of our campus and it's fascinating. You know, I'll often read more about it at home later. I just think, wow, that's such a great project. Um, so we get to support your research and help you go and achieve your goals. And I ultimately think my impact now, so the job satisfaction piece is partly the impact is so great. I'm not just impacting the students that are in my class. Yeah. But I have this impact and students come back year after year. I'm still in touch with so many of our alumni and um, to get a call, you know, from a student out of the blue is just such a delight um, and really gives. So in terms of that, um, that work satisfaction, I also have just a lot more balance. I mean, I give everything to my job when I'm at my job. I mean, you know that I'm incredibly dedicated to what I do. I also go home. And I spend time with my family and I really love spending time with my family and I have hobbies and those things also, I realized when I had the imbalance, those things help me be a better advisor. If I am sleeping, yeah. if I am having, if I'm reading the newspaper or having interests outside, I can come back and help you think about your project in a different way. So, um, it's not just about me being happy in my work, but I actually think all of that balance that I found helps me be better for our students. Yeah. So one of the uh, concluding questions that we've recently um, added to our agenda for our guests. Um, this is a surprise question. Uh, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> though I, I'm, I'm sure you'll answer it perfectly like the whole podcast has been, in my opinion. Um, how would you like to be remembered? Now, this question, um, some people answered in life. You know, how would you like to remember in life? Um, other people choose at Texas State. You know, how would you like to remember? So whatever feels more comfortable, whatever feels easier. Gosh, that's a good question. It's an interesting question to ask of somebody who I just celebrated my 45th birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Happy belated. <laughs> But it's kind of a middle of life, right? Yeah, it's where yeah. you start to um, you start to ask yourself these questions. You know, um, what is this all about? What is this all for? Um, I I had I had maybe an unusual experience um, a couple of years ago um, that I might that I might point to, um, not to brag, but um, <laughs> I, I would say a really important professional accomplishment for me was um, I was nominated for employee of the month and then I was selected as employee of the year. Mm -hmm. um, this was in 2020. Um, 
And I'd really, I'd been at Texas State for four years. So in some ways it felt, I remember at the time feeling like, am I good enough? Why did I win this? And somebody else didn't, you know? So it felt, I feel like at the time it, it felt maybe premature, or undeserved. We all have those doubts. Um, but looking back and it, it's not been that long, but I think COVID has made everything feel like that feels like it was five years yeah, ago. Yeah. As far as I, I feel like I grew so, 10 years yeah, older exactly. in the year of COVID. Um, looking back, I feel like I, I've, I'm, I'm inhabiting that space with more comfort. Um, and so it's something that was, um, it's professionally significant to me where I feel like I am, I mean, remember when I came into this position, I thought I could do this work, but I honestly, I mean, I hadn't been a fellowship advisor before, right? I'd had tons of experience with students. Um, I thought I would be good at it, but I was really learning the job as I was building the office. And I had some doubts about my ability to mentor scientists. You know, I kind of thought, is any scientist going to take me seriously? Um, and, and every year I feel like I've been um, coming into myself as a professional in a new field. And so I'm one of the things that I've noticed this year is just a feeling of, of ease and comfort with where I am. It doesn't mean that I'm not still challenging myself. So as I said, um, I, I'm always looking to improve the process and make it better. But um, there's, there's some kind of calm that I'm experiencing now where I'm like, I've made it to what I, you know, I feel like I know what I'm doing and I'm having a lot of fun with what I'm doing and I get to you know, think about what are the new programs that we want to focus on next and yeah. how can we grow and build, but it's coming from a place of a lot of, um, a lot more certainty. I think one of the things that's happening too is I'm now a mentor for many of my colleagues. So I talked about the professional oh, yeah. organization yeah. that I'm a member of. Um, I've taken on a leadership role in that organization. And again, in the beginning, I kind of thought, who am I to tell anybody else how to do this? I'm just learning what I'm doing myself, but now I am um, a mentor for many colleagues. Um, we we um, hired a second research coordinator, so I have helped him come into the job and progress um, in our field. So there's just a, um, I think again, that the legacy is really through my students. You know, it's the fact that um, when I was teaching, but continuing into this discipline, um, this, the, the work lives beyond all of us. I think many people will talk about the power of mentorship. You know, many of our students will go on to have their own labs and be mentoring their own students. And so one of the things that I hope is that some of the lessons learned or the pieces of advice would be something that one of my students would share with their students. And it, and, and it continues in that way. So I don't know, I think maybe that's a romantic vision of, <laughs> of um, impact, but I'm, um, I'm feeling finally like I deserve to be, have been employee of the year. Um, and I'm feeling, I'm feeling like that professional recognition is something that is, um, is where I am at in my career. So, well, I would certainly agree. Yeah, no, I, I would certainly agree. Um, Dr. Hilkovitz, thank you so much for coming on here today. Um, if, if anybody wants to get in touch with you for the graduate research fellowship or other external funding, um, is there an email that we could use? And, and we'll put everything in the description as well. Um, but 
Absolutely. So we have um, a web presence on the graduate college page. So if you go to gradcollege.txstate.edu, there is a funding tab and underneath there's external funding. Um, we have a shared email address that Brian and I use. So it's long, but it's gcexternalfunds at txstate.edu. You can also email me at akh70 at txstate.edu. Either one is fine. Um, and we would encourage you if you're interested. Um, I know there's some uncertainty, as I mentioned, in the next cycle, but we would typically say if you're interested, if you're an undergraduate student, we would generally recommend that you contact us first at the end of your junior year. So in the spring of your junior year, moving into the summer, that way we know you're interested. And when the solicitation comes out, you're already on our list and we can say, hey, it's out. Let's start working together. Um, it's always sad to us when we have students who in September say, hey, I'm interested and we've already started a process yeah. and we can't support those students. So uh, the earlier, the earlier, the better. Um, but we would love to we would love to support you. And that's the best way to reach us. OK, well, Dr. Hukovitz, thank you so much. This is fantastic. Um, and, and yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everybody. That's good. That was awesome. Yeah. I skipped the second to last question. Uh, yeah, we've reserved the room for 30 minutes after or 45 minutes okay. after. That's why I was like,